and welcome to an Oh God What Now emergency cast. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me is the silky voiced oracle that is Alex Andreu. Hello Alex. Hello. <laughs> so Alex, this initially was going to be just Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry and what's going on there, but then <laughs> events, my dear Alex, events have, have occurred since. I mean, it very much was in the immediate aftermath of the last Oh God What Now we recorded. Things started to go a little bit strange. As, for, as they tend yes, to do, actually. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, we see people off, don't we? We actually saw Robert Jenrick off is what we uh, yep. we managed to do there. So let's first off talk about the, the chaos and the horrible position that Sunak finds himself in. Horrible for him, maybe not horrible uh-huh. if you don't uh-huh. like him. But uh, is it the most baffling thing here that Boris Johnson is kind of melting before our very eyes at this COVID inquiry? You know, he's such a disdained person. And somehow Rishi Sunak has still dragged the news agenda away from that and onto his shortcomings and his fuck-ups, basically. Yeah, I mean, with ample defence, it has to be, with ample help from the backbenches, it has to be said, you know, one side can't create this kind of drama on its own. It needs um, people to play against. But yes, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. It, It feels now like we are way past the days when we were talking about you know, 4D chess and what might this mean? And and it just seems like the Conservatives are a clueless party that's simply addicted to chaos, actually. You know, they know no other way of being rather than this rancor and uh, confrontation and resignation and blaming and it, it just seems that that is now their natural state as it were mm. yeah. and i think that that makes it very very difficult to see them winning an election whatever happens yeah they seem to me like a really sort of amateurish chess player who you know when you first start playing chess not that i'm very good at it but you never think to take your piece backwards you yeah. always think you have to be constantly in this perpetual motion going forward and yes, that I opens so. up problems yeah. for you and they seem like they don't ever think to take a step back and go, maybe let's not do things for a little bit and work out what we're doing. They just mm. have to plough on. Sunak is in kind of a weird, stagnant, but then perpetual motion at the same time. Yes. It's quite, yes. quite bizarre. And I, and, and I keep casting my mind back to something we were discussing back in maybe March, April, mm. Um, when the first polls started coming in, showing that the position was basically reverting to what it was with a trust episode, yeah. that the lead was 20 points, and then with the by-elections. And I, and I remember us saying that what the Conservative Party need to do now is be rational, be calm, you know, <laughs> all of the things that are not, yes. that were never going to happen. Because basically what you get is a collection of backbenchers that are terrified for their job, yeah. that see their job disappearing. Basically, so I, I remember someone saying it might have been Raphael Bear that we had as a guest mm. at that point, who said that terror is very bad counsel, yeah. you know. Um, if if you have fear in your ear, it always advises you to do the wrong thing. And that was the problem for the Conservatives at that point, that they were going to behave like a sort of terrorized murmuration of starlings that just make random shapes. Yeah. But they don't represent anything. There's yeah. no reason behind them. It's just an expression of their 
sort of convulsions. Yeah. Um, although I have to say the initial error was all Sunaks, and it was what, you know, they call in tennis unforced. Um, because when he stood up there and listed his five priorities and said, stop the boats, literally everyone in politics, every commentator I know, this podcast, other podcasts, every journalist went, mate, that's a massive hostage to fortune, right? Yeah. At the moment he uttered those words, because it's impossible. It First of all, it doesn't depend on him. It depends on a myriad other things, on the weather even. And second of all, because why wouldn't you make a promise that you can then claim as a as a win? Like if, if Sunak had promised to tackle the boats or something along yeah. those lines, he would be now standing and claiming this as a victory because they ha he has reduced yeah. the numbers. He does have a better agreement with Albania and France. And so he took a potential victory and made it into a dead cert defeat. Stop yeah. the boats was never going to happen. And all these stuff we're seeing with the Rwanda policy is to do with that. Yeah. It's almost as if he was rushed into the position a little bit too soon, isn't it? I mean, I mean who, who would have guessed? It's just <laughs> politics one on And I don't know if he has awful instincts or getting awful advice or both. Yeah. But whoever approved that list that said, first of all, I'm going to cut inflation and grow the economy and cut the debt, things that are antithetical in economic terms, but also cut NHS waiting lists while half the NHS was on strike and stop the boats. I mean... Either they were setting him up for a failure or they're clueless. In terms of politicians being scared here, I mean, Rishi Sunak, when Jenrick went, I, I found it quite strange just how spooked it seemed to make him. You know, back in that, you know, the other year when Boris Johnson had so many resignations and he seemed less phased when mm -hmm. he had about 20 yes. than when Sunak had one. Why is he so spooked by Jenrick other than being... Is it just that they were buddies? He didn't expect it? Was he blindsided? But it, it didn't seem that surprising. So why did it you know, get his back up so much? I think the first thing is that they're very good mates. Mm. Um, not just that. Him, Jenrick and Dowden are seen very much as a, a sort of trio. They were seen very much as the up-and-coming um, you know, unit, as it were, in the Conservative Party. And so for such a close ally to abandon him in such a terrible moment and such a public way. And I suspect, although I have no way of verifying, but I, I, I must think that Sunak also suspects was in concert with Braverman, right? Because it seems to me a huge coincidence for her to stand up and make her great sort of, you know, exit interview speech. Resignation speech, despite which this is not, not resigning. Which is why I'm calling it an exit yeah. interview. <laughs> um, it seems to me a huge coincidence, sort of a day earlier, for her to stand up in the house and make this speech saying, I warn you, if you don't go too far, you're screwed. And the next day, um, his closest buddy and immigration minister to resign. That seems to me a coordinated move. And whether it's, it is or it's not, 
Sunak must also suspect yes. it might be a coordinated move, right? Which makes it quite a bit more menacing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like one minister resigning over a point of principle or because they don't think they can deliver X is one thing. Your closest buddy resigning in a way that helps your biggest rival overtly is quite a different thing, right? Mm. It is the it, it is very much the et tu brutus. Yeah, it's strange to moment. me though. Then if he does, if he were to game it out in that sort of way, though, for him then to react in this really knee jerk way of giving a speech, which to me felt like it was two conservative MPs in public, and, to and it felt very strange. Exactly, <laughs> it was sort of it just didn't really make sense, and so. If he is suspecting there are these kind of, I don't know, Machiavellian moves happening behind the scenes against him, for him to then just act in a very politically chaotic and some might suggest idiotic way was quite surprising. That speech, I mean, mm. you know, initial hot take, how, how just weird was that? It just seemed to me completely reactive and in a way that didn't need to be done. I don't know who it was for I and mean, what you, purpose it served for him. You can just rewind the recording and splice in what I said before if you want to hear. <laughs> terrible political instincts or terrible advice or both. Yes. Yeah. And so all of this cannot continue to surprise no. us no, no. because it's now becoming the norm. Yeah. You know, he's, he's really bad at this, as was Truss, as was Johnson. Mm. As was May. Yeah. It's... Really bad at this. <laughs> what made the speech... For so... different reasons each, yeah. but really bad at this. But exactly, so what made this speech from Sunak so particularly bad? Was it the the content, the way that he was forced to shape the content? Was it. it the delivery? Was all it, the, it the context? It was delicious. First of all, <laughs> he kept saying, right, 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 right. Mm. right. I, I've seen an edit that has all the rights... Oh. just spliced together, and I think it's 146 <laughs> of them in a yeah. very short speech, where he keeps going, right, 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 which is a self-soothing mechanism in linguistic ways. So he's looking for validation from the journalists <laughs> in the room. Effectively, subconsciously, that's what he's doing. He's going, I'm not crazy, am I? Am I? Am I? <laughs> um, but the content... <sighs> I mean, it was horrible because they've ended up effectively in this bidding war on who's going to be cruelest to migrants. And it's interesting that the three people in that bidding war, um, Braverman, Badenoch and Sunak, are all the children of migrants. Um, and so I just, I wonder if I were writing this as a play, then the final scene would have the victor of this trio deporting their own parents because they weren't born in this country, because that's the natural extension of their policies, <laughs> going, sorry, mum, sorry, dad, <laughs> off you go. With Rishi Sunak, I, one thing I do find quite strange about him, you know, he, he seems to be more and more showing us who he is, which is someone mm. who's very self-interested and relatively incompetent when it comes to politics. But when it comes to acting on that self-interest, I'm never quite sure. It's almost if there are, there's a battle between him where it's thinking, what's the self-interest for me after I am booted out of parliament? And what's the self-interest now in retaining being prime minister for a long while and potentially thinking, could I, could I turn this around? Even though 
I, I, I doubt he can really truly think that. <laughs> Why does he seem to be wanting to appease the right when I don't think he I don't think he really can? And in terms of if he is thinking even of just self-interest, could he not you know tack to being a more sort of centrist technocratic guy and then go and get some CEO job after of some kind? Whereas if he comes out as the I'm a hardliner right winger guy, then he's going to be persona non grata in all sorts of careers afterwards. I don't want our Prime Minister to be thinking about his job afterwards, but surely he is. So, Which is why I think he's saying it and then not doing it, mm. which is why I think he's stuck, actually, because I, I, I suspect that his instincts, and I don't want to say centrist, because he's not centrist in any way, he's very right-wing, but he's an economic right-winger. And an economic right-winger does understand the value of immigration. It does understand, you know, that what you need to do is grow the economy, is tear bar barriers down, improve on a deal with the EU, basically uh, normalize relations and make everything smoother. So he does know that and he does understand that. But the people he's got behind him, you know, the people in the on the benches behind him are lunatics. You know, I, I I do think it is easy to underestimate how hulled out the, the Conservative Party has become through the Brexit experience, right? First on the 2015 election, when a, a group of One Nation Tories saw what was coming with the referendum and went, I don't want anything to do with that. Then inadvertently with a 20. 17 election where a lot of those people lost their seats to angry Brexiters that basically wanted something a little more hardline. Then in 2019, deliberately by Johnson, who basically threw a, a load of actually intellectual heavyweights mm. out of the party in favor of, you know, nodding ninnies. And I I, th I think the effect of that on the party cannot be overestimated. It really is a husk of its former self. It really is populated by people who would struggle to become a UKIP councillor <laughs> 10 years ago and are now, you know, Rick Holden is now the, the you know, the chairman, the new chairman of the Conservative Party, Jonathan Gullis has a ministerial position. You know, people like that would not get through the first vetting interview 15 years ago. They just wouldn't. You know, someone would, would spend five minutes with Lee Anderson and decide that we need to be nowhere near this person as a party. And so you now have all these people dictating policy. Like or loathe Boris Johnson, and I'm, I'm sure most listeners know, will know where we stand there, he, he had something about him and it kind of, he made sense for them to go, you know, he could win an election. At this point, you did win an election. Yeah, exactly. And they, you know, but at this point, you know, who there's no one there to turn to. So is that why? Is that all that's holding them them back at this point? Do you think if there were someone who could be a spearhead of that sort of movement, 
they would go for it? Or do you think, think they're stupid enough to I just go for it anyway? I think they're going to go for it. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I agree entirely with the premise of the question. Yeah. There's no one there, but they will still go for it because I think there are enough people whose brain works in this very linear, very simple way, okay? They look at what's going on in the polls and they think, we're on 25. If Suella Braveman, say, comes in, if she can boost us to 28 mm. and we can gobble up that 10% that's going reform mm. now, that's 38. We've got a fighting chance. Mm. That is the thinking, you know, and there is some minimal merit to that, only until it meets reality. And then you find out that actually a percentage of those people who have, no, have gone to reform will never come back to you mm -hmm. because they consider you turncoats. And that actually any boost that Braveman can give you will be countermanded by the people in sort of traditional constituencies that you lose to a now very centrist Starmer who's saying, come to me. Um, and you know, you will end up losing more seats than, than you can win. That rationale is, I'm sure, at work here. You know, that they, they think of this as 2018, and they think, well, hang on, Boris Johnson came in. You know, Theresa May was having this kind of trouble in December 2018. Boris Johnson came in a few months later, and a few months after that, we won an 80-seat majority. So yeah. why couldn't we do it again? You know, that will be the thinking. The only problem is that there's a country out there looking on, going, yeah, but this isn't the first time you do this. This is the fourth time you yeah. do this. And, you know, the patience is a lot shorter the fourth time you do something. So yeah, that, that victory happened on my birthday in 2019. So let's hope that that isn't my birthday present next oh, year, God. fingers crossed. So let's move on to what we originally planned to talk about entirely, Boris yes. Johnson at the COVID inquiry. Uh, talk me through just in a in a surface level, what was his performance really like? He did all right. Yeah, like he didn't make his position any worse. He didn't make it any better, and it was terrible to start with. So he's still in a terrible <laughs> position. He just didn't make it worse, which was a distinct yeah. possibility, you know, because he's a wazak. Mm. You know, at a really basic level. All this stuff, you know, oh, isn't it terrible what he came and did? I mean, if there's anyone whose character the nation knew fully well going into that vote, it's Boris Johnson, you yeah. know. The country chose to elect a clown, and what it got in return was farce. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so he didn't shit his pants again, but he hadn't changed his pants either, basically. Yeah, you know, and, and it was interesting. You saw glimpses of, I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of it. Yeah, I've been. Um, you know, as, I think as a trained actor and as someone who also teaches drama and does a lot of auditions, there were moments that really peeled the enamel off my teeth <laughs> when, you know, he feigned choking up an emotion, but in a way, a, a sort of talented seven-year-old amateur child in a primary school production would, mm. you know, <laughs> choked up a little bit and... Um, you know, but but his friendly press sort of ate all that up and yeah. was like, Johnson chokes with emotion as he recounts terrible, terrible year. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, he made it 
a, a terrible year, mm. a much more terrible year than, than it needed to be. A lot of it was precisely as predicted. So he was very difficult to pin down on issues that were hard to answer, notably why they were late locking down the second time. Um, but there was also a sense from the inquiry, and you know, I am fully gleaning into the minds of other people here and just giving you my gut reaction to what I saw in Lady Hallett and in the council for the inquiry. And there was the same impression that one got when they were questioning Hancock, that there came a point when um, they were effectively signaling to each other, we're not going to get anything useful out of this person. We're not going to get anything truthful out of this person. So why are you pressing him? You know, we've established his slippery in many, many ways, the evidence against him is so incredibly clear that you don't need him to confirm that he said, let the virus rip or not. You have it there in writing, in multiple documents. So, you know, he would sit there and say that when I, when I um, use the expression, let the virus rip, I was merely expressing a view that was out there in order to test mm. the argument in the room. You know, I was okay. doing it as a sort of dialectic exercise, which, you know, might, might have some merit. Maybe yeah. that's what he was doing. But that's not what everyone around him thought he was doing. Is that, is that a hard thing about this kind of this show of sort of open justice they're going with with this inquiry, mm. let's call it, in that... What it actually provides is, as you say, this opportunity for him to bullshit and obfuscate in the way that he does. But it's it's then very hard to balance out that I feel like the public wants to see these people publicly questioned and tested mm. and their ideas challenged and what they've said challenged. But then if that makes it descend into a sort of circus as someone like Boris Johnson will make everything turn into yeah then that's counterproductive how do you balance out those two those two interests really yes i think it might seem like that to um to people who are not used to the legal process right what it's what it looks like to people who are used to the legal process is a barrister does not ask a question that he or she does not know the answer to that's the bottom line when the KC for, for the inquiry says to him, did you ever use the expression, let the virus rip? And Johnson says no, and he's then presented with multiple documents <laughs> where he uses it. What the counsel for the inquiry is doing is setting up the paragraph in the um, report that will read as follows. Mr. Johnson denies he ever used the expression, let it rip. That is not cred credible given the evidence before us. Yeah. That's all. That's all it's doing. It's giving him the opportunity. It's giving him enough rope to hang himself, basically. Yeah. It's giving him the opportunity to front up and say, yes, I used it. But it was, you know, which is what Gove did. Which is mm. why, why Gove intellectually, I think, is, is head and shoulders above yeah. all of them, actually. What Gove did is when... When he knew there was stuff there that was established, he just said, yes, I'm really sorry about that. 
It was a horrible time and we are fallible human beings yeah. and the pressure was immense and we got loads of things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think Johnson is so chaotic, I suppose, that the the benefit of this is then putting into him into a position where it's such a narrow lane mm. that it will just be structured. And you can go, okay, actually, this is a time where not being structured cannot serve you well because yeah. we will just keep going and we will keep lining it up. And it's interesting that he regressed yeah. on a lot of the Partygate stuff, for instance. So he went back to, I did nothing wrong. Yeah. I still don't know what I did wrong. Yeah. You know, that was his position after showing up ashen-faced, you know, and going, oh, it's terrible. I'm so sorry to the nation, but I've learned my lesson. I've read the report and I'm going to put everything right. After, you know, the Sue Gray report, um, it turns out that he'd learned nothing. He was just putting on a show exactly as he was putting on in this, you know. And again, the Telegraph and the Daily Mail went, oh, you know, terribly contrite. Mm. Johnson, you know, held back the tears about Partygate. He was putting on a show for them. They lapped it up because they wanted to. And that was the narrative. And we see now, a year and a bit later, that he's standing up and says, I still don't know what I did wrong. We didn't have any parties. No. You know, it was just work <laughs> gatherings with any, beer. Uh... <laughs> Were there any new key points which really came out here? Or was, as you said, the more interesting things, were some of the more interesting things that what he, what he forgot, the key points which were, were almost missing from his, uh, mm. his memory? Yes, there, there, were, there was a lot of I don't remember, I don't recall, I don't know. There was even one of the more rare permutations of, of this, which is, if I knew I have forgotten which I, I particularly enjoy. Yeah. So in answer to our question, <laughs> he said, if I knew this, I have forgotten. Um, so, uh, That's about the most logical thing I've heard him say, really. But you, you genuinely can't remember what you forgot because you have forgotten it. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's bollocks, but at least it has some but, sort of uh, um, logic. I mean, the, I guess the answer is, like I said, I got the impression from the inquiry that they know. They, you know, by now... They have seen enough of the evidence to know what happened. And what happened was this. There was a government that had its eye off the ball. This is, this is the short story, okay? Because of Brexit, because of the election they had just won, they were on a high. Their eye was off the ball, okay? They were concentrating on other stuff. When the pandemic came to Europe, there was a sense of exceptionalism that, you know, Italians are wankers and the Spaniards are, you know, uh, lazy and we're going to cope with this much, much better, which meant they kept their eye off the ball until far too late to do anything about it, right? Um, Johnson justified a lot of stuff by going in retrospect. In retrospect, I would have done it differently. In retrospect, you know, in hindsight. There's no hindsight required here. What was lacking was a, a, any sense of foresight. Mm. That's what was missing, you know. When, when he stood there with his chief medical officer and his chief scientific advisor next to him, and they said, from now on, you must avoid physical contact, and he comes in with, I went to a hospital today and I shook yeah. hands with everyone. You know, there's no foresight required there, right? There is, there is no in retrospect there. You are 
not taking something seriously that you ought to. And that's what happened. So that's the first <laughs> wave, right? Yeah. And then what happened in the second wave is that the sense had crept in that the economic effects of lockdown were too grave to be justified by just saving a few thousand old people. That's what happened. That is the short, horrible story of how the government reacted to the pandemic here. They were too late to react to the first wave, and they were too complacent to react to the second wave. And then they were completely out of the office for the third wave, incidentally, because there was a third wave that also killed about 50,000 people, Omicron. Yeah. a year later, which they completely ignored until, again, it was too late. So the lesson the COVID inquiry will learn is that there is no system for learning lessons. No. Yeah, it sort of uh, it redefines the idea of hindsight, doesn't it, when it seems like they required the amount of hindsight that a mouse being shocked requires to not be shocked and follow the maze yeah. to a piece of cheese. Yeah. That's not really hindsight. No. That's just learning. From like by the third time you've done the maze, you should know that, yes. right? Yeah. And still they go for the cheese. Mm. And so that's what happened. And it's horrible. And it costs thousands of thousands of lives. They want to come out of it suggesting that it was an entirely novel situation that all governments struggle, which is both things are true, right? It was unprecedented. All governments struggled. And that... Ultimately, we ended up mid-table. We didn't end up mid-table. If you look at truly comparative countries like Germany and France and Spain, you know, we ended up second to last. That's what happened. And if you factor into that, that we were the people with the biggest heads up and the most organized health system, a truly national health mm. system, we should have been near the top, not second to bottom. And that is the aspect that I think is not coming through clearly enough by any of the commentary that I've seen, right? They all go, how did we do in comparison to Italy? How did we do in comparison to France? Well, yes, how did we do in comparison to Italy, considering we had like six weeks yeah. to get our ducks in a row while it hit Italy? We had three weeks more than France to see what was happening there and react to it, right? And if you put that into the mix, then really we did worse than any Western uh, democracy, bar none. If you consider the fact we are an island with highly controllable borders, with a very, very compliant population, we, we are a population that follows rules on the whole, with a very well-organized national health system and had two months to prep for this, we did fucking horribly. Yeah. Alex... Uh, well, this is one Sorry, reason why it we're... it was a uh... bit of a marathon <laughs> session. <laughs> no, this is why we're, we're lucky to have you to point out these things that other people miss for us. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure.
And thank you for listening to Oh God, What Now? If you want episodes ad-free and early, you can sign up to our Patreon with membership starting at £3 per month. Plus, our live show next week with James O'Brien is sold out, but it will be streamed for Patreon backers, so there's yet another reason to sign up. There's a link in the show notes or search Oh God, What Now? Podcast Patreon to find a link. (laughs) 